Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 201. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, I'm happy to be joined by Brianna St. Marie. Brianna, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. (laughs) Happy to have you. So how have you been? Anything exciting happened in the last few weeks? Any major tournaments you might have participated in that <laughs> that would have got people's attention? There's one maybe that comes to mind. <laughs> Definitely had a, a fun run at the uh, that ADCC tournament that happened a few weeks ago. So that's probably my my latest life development. I was able to to medal at that event, so that was super cool. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that you are now Canada's most accomplished ADCC grappler, right? I think that the honor you achieved is the highest that any Canadians ever got at uh, that event. Yes, sir. So I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there had never been a Canadian to medal in an event. And then at this ADCC, Dante Leon and I had both medals. So we became the first Canadians to medal at ADCC. And then I got the silver medal. He got the bronze. Um, I guess it'll be a race to see which one of us gets the gold next time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, congratulations. You're doing the country proud, and I'm super happy to have you here. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. <laughs> well, just in the event that someone missed the memo and didn't see the event, why don't you give yourself a, a quick introduction and just tell everyone who you are? Sure. So uh, my name is Brianna, like you heard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I train out of Montreal, Canada. I am a full-time grappler. This year, my focus was the ADCC World Championships. So I spent the beginning of the year qualifying, preparing to qualify by participating in the North American Trials. So I won my spot at ADCC by winning the North American Trials. And then I competed in the ADCC World Championships in September and, and came in second. Yeah. Fantastic. And a question for you. Do you consider yourself to be primarily a no-gi grappler or do you kind of split your time between the gi and no-gi? So I like when I started jujitsu, I was primarily in the gi, even up until like purple belt. You know, I think I was training no-gi probably like twice a week maximum. And then all my other trainings were in the gi. But then I you know, was looking for as many opportunities as possible to kind of climb the rankings and make it to like you know, have access to fight against the top, the best fighters in the sport type thing. And I found that I had more opportunities to kind of climb up the ranks and opportunities, not just to uh, fight other skilled athletes, but also in terms of, you know, getting my travel paid. And obviously if my travel is paid uh, or if I'm paid to actually compete, that means that I can do more competitions. And I felt like I had more avenues to do that through Nogi. So i began to slowly just training more in Nogi as a result of like having competitions coming up that were in Nogi and then slowly kind of just turned into me only training in Nogi for the past year. 
Got it. Makes sense. And the reason I ask is because I think that's probably going to inform this conversation at least a little bit. What we had talked about was doing a deep dive into arguably the most classic jujitsu position, the closed guard. And so with that said, I am looking forward to picking your brain about a position that somehow we managed to get 201 episodes into without ever actually discussing. <laughs> you know, we've, we've talked about every other weird, obscure position you can think of, but for some reason, we've never actually had a sit down and talked about the closed guard, which is something that you're especially known for. So I'm looking forward to doing this with you. Well, I mean, maybe in a way, you know, the closed guard has become that obscure position <laughs> just because <laughs> So many people have kind of discounted it. You know, they kind of say, oh, that's something that can work at a lower level. But, you know, when if you get to like a high level black belt match, you know, you're going to be, let's say, hitting, I don't know, for example, a hip bump from from close guard, you know. So I guess that's a reference for those of you who watched my performance at ADCC. But just to say that there's a lot of people who respect the close guard as a position, that's without a doubt. But I think there's, I mean, to this day, there's a lot of people, even though I, I continue to have success with it in competition at a high level, I still get actually a lot of people who make comments about closed guard, you know, kind of being something that you need to know, but not necessarily you're looking to use as a high level competitor, which I always kind of strikes me as funny because I think if there's one position I have the most success with in my career, it's probably through the closed guard. Interesting. So what you're bringing up there reminds me of when I started jujitsu as a white belt. I basically didn't even see open guard until I was, you know, had a, had several stripes on my white belt. Basically, closed guard was taught as the fundamental position to me back then. And I know that, like you said, it's kind of fallen out of vogue and things have changed a lot. Uh, there's a lot of people now who, as instructors, they won't even teach their students closed guard until they've had a decent amount of experience playing open guard guard first. So there's been an interesting shift there, I think, in terms of what is considered the the fundamentals that are timeless and always work. You know, it used to always be thought that closed guard was the bread and butter that everyone should start with. But now I know that a lot of instructors, they focus on open guard first. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. I mean, what, what is your feeling on this? And what has your experience been with how instructors tend to teach this position? And do you think that maybe they don't give it the love that they should? Um, yeah, definitely. And so I think in terms of, let's say, like as being something being taught as a fundamental, I do think that open guard is super important to be taught as like a fundamental as well. Again, if we make that split between like gi and nogi, the one thing I'll say is I do feel that in nogi, it can be a bit more difficult to like force a close guard, like, you know, to force someone to come into your close guard. I feel like I have less ways to kind of set that up. And maybe you see it's, it's possible. I feel like I see a little less close guard in nogi. And if I think of a beginner who's starting off, maybe they would in nogi end up you know, seeing open guard positions more often than a closed guard position. In the gi, I do feel that there's, it's, I have more options to kind of set it up and force my opponent to come into my closed guard. So that's definitely a factor. And I think it just comes, the issue is that people get very like, they want to take a stance on something. So, you know, they're like, oh, it's more important to learn this than that. And the closed guard is passe or the closed guard is everything, you know, and in the end, neither is, is true. Like you have to have a functional open guard. You have to have a functional closed guard, in my opinion. I think that, you know, they're both part of that. The should be part of those early foundations. Yeah, I I agree entirely. It's something that I, I know John Thomas has said on the podcast. I think on one of our premium series, we did a multi part guard retention series with him, and I was trying to get him on record to 
pick some favorite positions and some favorite techniques. And his response was basically, look, getting attached to to techniques because you like them is kind of a dumb idea. You should really pick whatever works, right? You don't want to condition yourself to think only open guard works so that you're naturally predisposed to avoiding closed guard. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to learn closed guard and throwing out a perfectly good tool just because you like one of the other tools really isn't a good decision-making process. So I think that for a lot of people, and I, I include myself in this, probably their closed guard is underdeveloped just because, I mean, if we emulate what we see, you, like you said, a lot of people use open guard. There's a lot of variation and variability in open guard. And I'd say that probably the the modern grappler now, on average, I'd say they probably prefer open guard more than closed guard. But what that does mean is probably there's this area of their game that's underdeveloped, and that's an opportunity. It's also something that you can exploit if you're fighting against someone who has that underdeveloped close guard as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's something that kind of gives me an advantage. Like stylistically, I have, if I compare it to like other women in my division, I don't see as many women who, for example, like play a lot of half guard or play a lot of close guard. And you know, the more you play a position, the more you understand it from a defensive standpoint as well, right? So I feel that I'm good at passing half guard because I play so much bottom half guard that I understand like what my opponent's goals are and, you know, what groups I have to respect the most, et cetera. So I think that the fact, you know, it's, I think the two, two things that give me the advantage in my close guard, obviously it's, you know, having spent hours trying to develop my close guard, that's first and foremost, but then, you know, other factors just like one, if they haven't played much close guard themselves, you could be told how to pass a close guard or any guard. But, you know, until you've played it a certain amount yourself, it's, you're not going to fully understand, like, what your opponent is looking for. You know, you can, you can kind of understand it, but I feel like the best way is to actually just play that guard that's giving you trouble, and that's going to really help you out. And then the other thing, too, is if a gym, let's say, there's not many people who, like I said, a lot of people don't respect the closed guard as much as they used to in like a general trend sense. So if there's less people in general at your gym that are playing closed guard, you could, like, you know, look me up, see Brianna likes the close guard. I got to prepare for her close guard. But then in training, if you don't have like training partners that are going to give you a hard time from close guard, uh, then, you know, you won't be as prepared for the match as you could be type thing. You know, it's funny you bring that up. I've always thought that when it comes to building a strategy, one of the easiest and quickest ways to do that is to look at the positions and the techniques that people look down on, you know, for whatever reason that they're they kind of disparage. And focus on developing those, because if there is an area of the game that people are always crapping on and they are generally disliking, that's usually an indicator that they're not developing that area of their game well enough. You know, a good example of that being the the 2010s leg lock explosion, where leg mm-hmm. locks went from being this thing that were honestly considered kind of dirty and low class to now being considered really an essential part of jujitsu. Because there was a time when if you knew even rudimentary leg locks, you would be able to just tear apart people who were more experienced than you because they had no defense. And I do wonder if closed guard is making the rounds like that too, where there's been so much of an explosion in open guard development, the people have neglected the the thing that got us to the dance in the first place. And maybe over the next five or 10 years, we're going to see a resurgence of these techniques simply because they're underdeveloped. So that's an opportunity for competitors to exploit. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I don't want to get too uh, down a hurry about it, but I think you said it before, you know, these things are very cyclical. So if you can kind of be 
on like, I guess if you're at, at the beginning of a new cycle, then that definitely gives you that advantage, uh, competitively speaking. And, you know, with every one of these movements, like my dad talks about a lot too, he, he trains as well. And, you know, he loves to say that the leg locks exploded and then, you know, maybe people take things like too far in certain directions and then it gets like cleaned up. You see, for example, you saw a big movement, leg locks became huge, but then you also saw like this great developments of like Baron Bolo's like to counter leg locks. Um, so then it kind of like, you know, it kind of cleans up. You, you, maybe it tapers down the amount of leg lock attacks, but the good stuff stays. And then the stuff that maybe went a bit too far as leg locking became like really popular, maybe that kind of gets put to bed. You're left with the quality kind of of the technique and the whole sport evolves, right? So I think it's really cool to kind of like see the way the sport is is moving forward. Yeah, it is interesting because we kind of. I mean, we kind of get to see history happen in real time in a lot of ways. And I mean, I don't have an extensive background in other martial arts, just in jujitsu. So I can't say for certain, but it sure feels to me that when you're looking at other martial arts, like wrestling, for example, I mean, you're talking about a martial art that's been around for literally thousands of years, whereas jujitsu, as we know, it is still a, a very new art. And you can even shorten that timeline because honestly, it wasn't even really in the public eye globally until a few decades ago. And so now it's fascinating to watch because we're literally seeing it develop in real time. You know, the strategies that worked five years ago might be very different from the strategies that we we ha use now. I mean, if you were to take a modern grappler and put him in a time machine and send him back in time 10 years their type of jujitsu would look very different from what was being done back then. So it's a, it is very interesting to see how quickly and how rapidly the art evolves just literally as you're watching it. And of course it makes it hard to, to keep up with it as well, because as a practitioner, it's just a massive arms race. There's constantly new tools and weapons being thrown at you that you have to learn to adapt to. Oh, without a doubt. And like, that's definitely something I feel, you know, stress about as someone who's trying to make like a living out of being like a, a competitor and whatnot. It's just like, it's not enough to just like get good at a skill. And then not like this. But I mean, essentially, just confirming what you said, right? It's not good enough to just like, become really good at something. In the end, someone it's only a matter of time with how there's so much depth to the sport. It's only a matter of time until someone discovers a way to like, at the very least cause you like extreme difficulty in your sequences, you know, and you have to like, not just like wait for those moments to happen, but actively seek them out, I think is like how you become the best. It's like, you're asking people to like poke holes in your best stuff at the gym on a daily basis, you know, so that way, hopefully you're troubleshooting this like in the gym and not in competition. So question for you, why do you think closed guard kind of fell out of popularity? What do you think was the reason why all of a sudden Everyone went from, you know, pulling into close guard and trying to trying to attack from there to this more open dynamic game. Is there something you can identify that led to that change? I would just say probably has to do with like what we were, uh, mentioned before about like the cyclical nature of things, just because if everyone was playing close guard, you know, then if someone else comes in and starts playing like, I don't know, like an X guard or something like Marcelo or whatnot then people aren't used to defending that, right? Maybe 20 years ago, everyone was used to defending the close guard. Everyone was really like, had a lot of like hours in the gym, both playing and defending close guard. So if that's what you were going to go into a tournament and trying to use, maybe it would be more difficult against those competitors versus today, if there's less people who are dealing with that at the gym on a daily basis. Yeah, so I think something to that nature is maybe what, what happened. Very possibly. You know, you're always looking for that asymmetric advantage. If you can 
find an area of the game that's underdeveloped in your opponent, then you can exploit it. So it could be that, you know, there's nothing wrong with closed guard, but just because people's weaknesses were uh, against open guards, there was a transition where people switched to that technique. And we might see a, a reversal where in the next few years, there's a big push towards closed guard. I could very much see that happening. That's it. Definitely very possible. One thing I remember, too, in my earlier days is, you know, back when I I started, basically the majority of guard passes were done either from one or both knees. There wasn't really a lot of standing passing going on. And I think that at some point there was this realization that, hey, you're not obliged to just sit in someone's close guard on your knees and try to pass from there. You can disengage. You can get up. You can back out. You can then launch into long step passing sequences. And I, I kind of wonder if this push towards standing guard passing was the thing that kind of changed the game with closed guard, because I mean, honestly, closed guard is most effective if you can either hold your opponent down on the ground or if they're already intending to stay down there. Right. But if your opponent is hell bent on backing up and getting to their feet, it's a bit harder to play close guard because they just don't want to stay in that position, right? So then it becomes a game of, okay, how can I force the person to stay here versus, well, the person's going to stay here anyway, so I might as well attack from here. Yeah, totally. Actually, that, that's a really great point because kind of like I mentioned, especially then when it comes to Nogi, like one of my difficulties is that it's, it's harder to like impose my close guard on someone, right? So obviously if I'm thinking about like, uh, you know, fight in a tournament, I would like option number one for me is always to close the guard. But a reality is, is that it's not something that I can, like, I can always kind of choose to play a seated guard. And it's difficult for my, my opponent to, like, not allow me to, like, pull a seated guard, let's say. But definitely in terms of, like, pulling a closed guard, unless I'm jumping closed guard. And then there's a few off balances I like to do that lead me into the closed guard in Nogi. But my options are much more limited if my opponent, you know, like, wants to pass standing and wants to pass from the outside. It's not something that I can always impose on them. So that's 100% a factor. And then I guess too, like you, you said, like in terms of the development of the sport, there are a bunch of like things in jujitsu that we do. Like you said, you know, realizing you don't have to like stay on your knees or pass on one knee. You can be a lot more dynamic, try to pass on the outside, etc. That can make it harder to close a guard. I completely agree that the way people have changed their passing has also impacted like your ability to like force a close guard on someone. So that's 100% a factor as well. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point, too, about the rise of no gi changing things. When you're wearing a gi, it's, you know, it's kind of like a tractor beam, right? You can just grab onto someone and just pull them towards you and lock them down and you can hold them there. There's a whole bunch of cool gi based controls you can do to clamp someone into your guard so they can't get out. But all of those options are primarily available in the gi. So closed guard is a very attractive thing in the gi because you have these incredible handles where you can just pull someone into your guard and then clamp and latch onto them. Whereas in no gi, it's much harder to, to lock someone down like that because you don't have those strong controls. So there's a, a degree of no gi, which is a bit more reactive. You have to acknowledge it's Look, it's a lot harder to paralyze someone with grips in Nogi. So a big part of the game needs to be fluidity and reaction and tracking their movements and just very, very hard to do that without the Gi. So I think that maybe the movement towards Nogi and the popularity there has been uh, yet another reason why closed guard has kind of gone by the wayside recently. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that being said, like I do feel there's obviously things I love to do in the Gi from the closed guard. In Nogi, though, if I can actually like close the closed guard, I do feel like 
really powerful, you know, almost just as much as if I were in the gi. But yeah, it's, it's mostly I find the biggest difference is just being able to like get them into the close guard is where it's probably where my biggest battle is. And then once they're in the close guard, I do feel like a really like big advantage in the amount of control I have over my opponent compared to like the control they have over me. So maybe that's as good a time as any to transition into the nuts and bolts here. You mm-hmm. mentioned that you've got some great no-gi setups and entries that you like to get into closed guard, and I'd love to, to hear how you do it. I mean, my experience has always been that in the gi, very easy to get someone to closed guard. You know, if I can get that standard judo 50-50 grip where I've got your collar and I've got your sleeve, mm-hmm. man, if I want closed guard, I'm going to get closed guard. Right? Yeah. There's really nothing you can do to stop me. <laughs> but in no gi, it's a much, much harder thing. So I'd love to know, you know, when you get it into your head that it's time it's time to close the guard, how do you get someone close enough that you can actually latch onto them and cross your ankles behind them? Yeah, for sure. So again, like no gi, a bit more difficult. I would say my the two setups that I've used like the most often, like against good opponents in competition would be one super simple, like especially nogi people like to wrestle more. So if someone's willing to tie up with me, I don't like jumping guard from a distance. It scares me. I'm, I'm a very fearful person. <laughs> so I, but if I can like tie up with someone, like if they're wanting to like a collar tie on me or whatever, usually I feel pretty comfortable to jump guard from there. So that's option one, option two. And then that also includes, you know, obviously any kind of like, standing exchange where they're going to get into my legs especially if there's like it's like a sub only which you see a lot in nogi so it's worth mentioning you know if it's a sub only exchange and they're coming up on some sort of single leg or or a double obviously you could always jump to the close as they take you down that gets a little finicky obviously if you're talking about like an ibgf match where you're, you're conceding two points uh and also you know you can kind of slam yourself sometimes when you do it so it's something to be cautious of uh but in terms of like from guard play I would say the the number one setup I get to my close guard in competition is is a uh, a knee lever kind of off balancement, and then I use that opportunity to close the guard. So from my half guard, I'll go for a knee lever sweep. Often, what happens is the person, in order not to get swept, especially if I'm controlling the hand that that w- they would post with, uh, their only other option to kind of catch their base is to flare their free leg out behind them. And by doing that, they essentially like really like narrow themselves out and I'm able to just slide my leg out of the half guard and into the full guard. Uh, That's probably my number one setup from like actually being in guard if we take out um, jumping close guard. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, a a challenge with closed guard with getting into it is if the person's got, you know, if they're compact and tight, they've got their elbows in they're they're creating a small frame. It can be difficult to jump into closed guard because they'll probably catch your legs and just go right into a passing sequence. But Mm -hmm. that example you brought up where you're basically attempting a sweep on them. And their only option is is basically to base, right, to prevent themselves from going over. As soon as they base, they open up their body. And now there's that pocket of space where you can just shoot your leg in and boom, right into close guard. That's it. And you definitely want to be doing that like off and off balancement. Just, you know, like we were talking about in light of the movement with leg locks. A mistake I've made in the past is being like a little too free to try to like shoot my my foot into that pocket of their hip. And if you're not able to connect to a close guard, then they can just throw their leg over your hip, they have the inside position essentially, and they can start attacking your leg. So versus if you're doing this off of an off balancement, like using that knee lever that I like to do, then they're just thinking about saving themselves off the sweep. So it gives you that window of time where it's safe to kind of put your foot into that hole, just because otherwise you have to be a little bit cautious about just kind of throwing your leg up into that space. Yeah, that that's a really good point. And maybe, maybe that's part of the reason why people have kind of moved away from closed guard to some extent, simply because If your opponent has good base and, you know, they've got their arms in a a good attack position, 
If you try to just jump into close guard from there, you're basically giving them grips on your legs, which opens up mm-hmm. all sorts of passing sequences, leg entanglements, all of that bad stuff. But like you said, if you are able to open and exploit that window where they're off balance, their hands are out of position because they have to base on the floor, maybe their leg is splayed out to the side because they've got a post with their leg. Now, suddenly you've got that pocket where you can just get in there before they can grab your leg and then you can tie them up. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. So you talked about jumping guard, which honestly terrifies me. I, I'm afraid to hurt. I'm, I'm old now. You know, I, I do this for fun, not to win. And I generally try to avoid, I guess you'd call it the fanny pack position where, you know, you jump onto someone on the front from close guard, but they don't go down. And so now you're kind of just dangling on top of their waist like a fanny pack. I'm always terrified of doing that because I hate getting slammed either advertently or inadvertently. I'd be curious to know, do you have any pointers for for jumping the closed guard or just really any standing closed guard entry that would be safer and would prevent you from just getting smacked on the ground on your way down? Yeah, so I mean, I guess one thing I like don't, like I mentioned before, I never jump the closed guard like kind of from a distance without like some sort of tie up. I find going from the tie up, I feel a lot like safer. And then it's obviously, you know, sometimes the person like kind of inadvertently, if they lose their base or something, they're going to, it can happen sometimes that you kind of land flush on your back. But in terms of being in that fanny pack position, I mean, something I really like to do is I'll, I'll jump the close guard. If my opponent like stays strong, which to be honest, like it's something I would want to do. If someone jumped close guard on me, I like to me going back to my knees, is like a huge like step backwards for me in, in terms of my progression. So if someone jumps close guard on me and I can stay standing, that's like a win for me. So ideally my opponent also doesn't want to kind of go to the knees, uh, which can kind of maybe save me from being slammed. So sometimes when I do get slammed, I'm happy because it means my opponent went to their knees. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of safety, not the best kind of way to see things. But if my opponent does stay standing, I really love to use the threat of an uppercut sweep. I think there's a tons of different names for it, but basically when you underhook the leg, uh, Hodger was super good at it. The one where you underhook the leg and, and you're bridging your, you're kind of swinging your hips, I should say, almost into the side of your opponent's knee. It's a really powerful sweep. I use it more as a sweep in the gi. In no gi, though, I started using it, honestly, just either I sweep my opponent successfully, or if not, it's enough of a threat to force them back onto their knees. And actually, if you, in my match against Bia Leo in the semifinals, I used that several times throughout the match because she kept successfully getting up in my close guard. Once my opponent is standing, my options are limited in terms of attack, so I really want to bring them back to their knees. So I'm often just going to that uppercut sweep to either, you know, best case scenario, I sweep to mount. That's great. But since it's no get off control of a sleeve, it can be a bit difficult to secure the, the mount position. But usually, as they recover their base, they're coming back down to their knees. So... That's a super great tool to use if you kind of like jump the close guard, your opponent stays standing. You know, there's things you can attack if you kind of stay up where you can look to to get, to, let's say, to a double under position. Kind of, I actually, I call, I call it the like koala position, you know, because you're kind of just like <laughs> wrapped around the person. Um, so if you're, if you're going to stay in that kind of koala spot, you know, you can look to fish for double unders. Like some people would get really surprised by that. And then you literally just open your guard, plant your feet on the ground and do like a body lock takedown. It's a great option, but... Beyond that, I'm looking to to kind of drop down and use that uppercut off balancement or sweep in order to get them to their knees or take them out of position. Yeah, I, li- I like that idea of basically trying to chop them down. You mentioned this, you know, generally speaking, in modern jujitsu, at least, if you're the person in the guard, it's 
generally considered to be stronger if you can stand up. Um, nothing against being on your knees, but um, something that I know that uh, Rafael Lovato Jr. has talked about is how uh, a big part of having a good guard strategy is to try to chop your opponent down. You know, if they're standing up, yeah, there's the possibility to go for sweeps, but if you can start wobbling their base and forcing them back down to their knees, now you open up the submission game. So I like that idea mm-hmm. of having an answer where if they do start to get up, you start trying to attack them to bring them back down to the floor. Yeah, definitely. And especially when we're talking about the close guard, you know, I would say that you have like, I don't know, you know, maybe 95% of the attacks from close guard come from an opponent who's on their knees. And then you still have options against that standing opponent, but they're just like so greatly limited compared to like everything you could do to potentially like, you know, uh, harm your opponent, <laughs> so to say, <laughs> when they're on their knees. So definitely looking to to break them down. And then once they're on their knees, then that's when the, the real fun starts. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I got a question about posture breaking. So let's say mm-hmm. that you get someone down to close guard, right? They're they're either on both of their knees or ideally, or maybe they're on one of their knees. Problem that happens a lot, of course, is people know to keep their posture upright and to make it really hard for you to pull them down and control them and ultimately start launching into upper body submissions against them. And in the gi, you got a lot of options to break the person's posture down. You know, if I've got someone in my closed guard and they're trying to posture up, Pretty easy for me to just get a good collar and sleeve grip and just pull them back down to the floor. And if you can get them down, you can even do fancy things like use their lapel and pull it behind their own back and then they'll never get up again, right? Yeah. In nogi, though, I find it pretty hard to actually keep someone's posture broken inside my closed guard. You know, I can, yeah, I can grab their arm and their head and I can try to pull them down, but it's so slippery and you just don't have those powerful gi grips. I find it's usually relatively easy for people to just posture straight back up and get that upright spine. And of course, once they do that, it's a lot easier for them to then get up to their feet and start doing standing passes. So I'd, I'd be curious to know, when you get someone into closed guard, how do you keep them there, especially in no-gi where you don't have the benefit of those gi grips? Uh, definitely. So, I mean, I think when I'm doing this in no-gi, you do have to be a bit more dynamic with your posture breaking versus, like you said, in the gi, if I do break my opponent's posture and I have, like, let's say, a strong cross-collar grip, it does feel kind of like, okay, the chances of them posturing back up are very slim versus in no-gi, you know, it could be that I have to kind of challenge my opponent's posture, like, you know, three, four times before I'm able to get, like, a strong offensive grip and start working for some sort of, like, upper body submission or potentially, like, a back attack or something. So I think it's really about, like, accepting the fact that you're going to have to be persistent with your kind of like off balancements and like essentially every time in nogi it's just like a matter of being like very persistent and i feel like my real work is just in keeping them on their knees and their posture broken and if i can win that battle and win that race then attack is is going to open up right so how i like to do that it's it's super simple nothing complicated but it's just about being ready that the second, because your opponent, in order to stand up, obviously they need some sort of frame between you and them. I'd say like the three frames I see most commonly are going to be a frame in the armpits, a frame at your hip line, or they're going to grab your wrists and kind of post your hands on your body and use that as kind of like a frame in order to be able to stand up. So all these different controls that they can take, I have to be ready to break those controls like the second that they're established. If you wait too long because you don't have as much like control over your opponent, they're going to be standing up super quickly. That's what I would be doing. So I'm looking to break those frames one and I have like, you know, different strategies for each kind of frame. And then I have to immediately follow up whichever frame I break, I have to immediately follow it up with some sort of off balancement. So obviously the easiest one and the one that I use most commonly is going to be just pulling my knees to my chest. 
Um, it's super easy, but it's again, it's being persistent with it. So let's say they, they post in my armpits. Okay. I'm clearing those grips. And as I'm clearing those grips, I'm pulling my knees to my chest and I'm breaking their posture forward, right? If I always time the knee pull to the moment I break the frame, uh, no matter who it is, they're going to kind of do that like face flat forward, right? And then it's like, okay, can I get to a control that's going to keep their posture broken, right? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes I'll be able to get to the head. When I'm taking my kind of collar tie, I really like to grab a bit higher up on the head because I feel like I have more leverage over my opponent's like body. I'm kind of higher on the end of the lever uh, versus a mistake, not necessarily a mistake, but I see a lot of people grabbing at the neck. And again, when you're dealing with someone strong in your close guard, sometimes grabbing at the neck, it's not enough to kind of keep them from posturing back up um, and being able to reestablish frames. So sometimes just grabbing a little bit higher in the head can give me a bit of an advantage. But then sometimes I'll break the frame. I'll pull my knees to my chest. They, you know, they tip forward, I off balance them successfully, but then they're able to just pummel their frames back in. Um, so I have to be ready to kind of do this dance quite a bit, right? And then, you know, when I fought Bia Basileo, she was doing all the right things from the close guard. You know, she was keeping her shoulder free from my high guard, which I really like to attack. She was always reestablishing her frames, but I was always taking apart her frames, right? So I was always taking apart her frames and off balancing her forward. Or if she did manage to stand up, I was using that uppercut sweep to bring her back to her knees. So I think it's just accepting that it might take a bit more work and you might have to break their posture several times. Unlike in the gi, if I get that, if I break their posture and I get a really nice cross collar grip, then yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of setting up camp there, you know? Uh, so it's just kind of like tailoring your expectations about the kind of work you're going to have to put in in the position. But I do still feel like such an advantage in the close guard because in the end, if you think about the position, right, I'm wrapped around your waist. I essentially get my whole body to attack just your upper body, right? So I get to use all four of my limbs to attack just your two limbs and your and your neck, let's say, right? Which is what I think makes the position so powerful. But yeah, so I, it's something I, I want to uh, definitely try to exploit. I just have to be ready to put in, be a little bit more dynamic with my attacks in the nogi, I guess. You know, that's actually a really interesting way to think about this. Something that Margot Ciccarelli once told me, I, I can't remember where she said this. I think it might have been on a, one of our premium courses, but she talked about the difference between static control versus dynamic control and how you've got to know which type of control is the right one for you, depending on what's going on. So a lot of gi-based closed guard control, I think you would call more static, meaning, look, you can get your grips, you tie the person down, and they just can't move. You know, as long as you've got those grips, they're stuck. There are a lot of positions that are very static like that, where once you lock the person down, you can kind of just sit there all day if you want and hold them there. And in the gi, closed guard can be one of those positions. But in no-gi, I think you need to think more dynamically because like you said, it's just not feasible that you're really going to be able to hold the person with broken posture in your guard for 10 minutes if you have to, right? You've got to be reactive to them. You've got to be uh, cutting angles. You know, if they try to posture up, you've got to break them back down. If they try to, to hand fight, you've got to make sure that, like you said, they can't get their hands into those armpits and they can't grab your wrists and punch them to your chest. So it's a, it's a different type of control because you're not trying to kill their movements like you might be doing in the gi, but rather you're just trying to react and stay one step ahead of them so that they can never win that grip fight and posture back up. You just always want to be keep... Uh, continuously hitting them with new attacks and off balances so that they can never really maintain that upright posture. Yeah, definitely. actually, I love that that comparison. And then maybe if I apply that, if I apply uh, Margot's analogy of the dynamic versus uh, static positions to the closed guard and nogi, what I'll say then is that I feel that in order to set up my attacks, I'm using like a, a 
very dynamic control. And then something I think that gives me the strength, like one of my, like maybe my strengths, my personal strengths in jujitsu is being able to kind of like use that static control the second I get into any kind of like advantageous position. And then so in the close guard, I find the early stages, it's, it's a very dynamic control, especially in the nogi. But if I, let's say, clamp like a high guard over my opponent's shoulder, I think something that gives me a high rate of success in that position is the fact that like I'm taking my time and I'm really like, I don't want to be super dynamic at that point in the sense that like I've put my opponent in like a very disadvantaged position where I feel that I should be, let's say if we like, you know, how Lachlan calls like uh, his variations of the, the 50-50 guard, like he has the 80-20 and the 90-10, you know, if I get to the close guard with a clamp over the shoulder, I feel like it's definitely 80-20 for me, you know? So in those positions, I really don't like to do like any kind of like big movements. I don't like to overextend in any direction. I, I don't like to kind of, I don't know, do, do too much, do more than I need to, I guess would be the way to say it. I'm really just looking up for which opportunity presents itself and which one, you know, if I get to that high guard, it's not like, oh, I'm getting this armbar no matter what, you know, it's, I'm going to read the reaction off my opponent and I want whichever avenue I choose that I'm like a hundred percent certain, you know, or at least it can never be a hundred percent certain, but I'm 98% certain that this will lead to like either the end of the match or to a dominant control, like the back or, or something like that, you know? So I guess knowing when to kind of like, to be dynamic with your your attack and your control and then knowing when to just like slow down and and kind of i don't know how to say it but you know what i mean <laughs> yeah I, I know what you mean i i always think of it kind of like probability management where when when you've got someone in your closed guard and it's you know they're postured up and maybe your legs are wrapped around by their their hips for example they've still got a lot of power and a lot of movement you know yeah they're they're sitting there in your guard and you're using all, all four of your your limbs against maybe two of theirs but they're still able to fight quite effectively and you might need to dynamically react to what they do. But when you get up to that high guard and you know, you're, you're basically almost already in like a triangle armbar position, that's a much more certain position. And from there, you can definitely slow it down. If you can hold the person there. Yeah. Like you said, you want to avoid big dynamic movements at that point because you don't want to create any openings that could let your opponent get out. You, you fought so hard to get that dominant position. So now the job, is, is tighten it down, lock it up, and keep the certainty of having a superior position versus taking big explosive risks and creating space and openings that could allow your opponent to get out. So yeah, that's an important thing to understand is that, yeah, there's different types of control. There's the static control. There's the dynamic control. And ultimately, you want to pick the right tool for the job. And yeah, sometimes you have to switch from one to the other, depending on uh, what your opponent is doing and how freely they can move around. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. And, you know, I, I think uh, all the time, my coach, Fabio, one thing that he says that that uh, stuck with me was, you know, if you get to one of these kind of more dominant positions and, you know, let's say I go for some big dramatic movement off my high guard and then just losing the control, you know, I, I basically gave my opponent a gift, right? That's what he likes to say. It. And then, <laughs> I love that expression because it's, it's so true. You know, I think about how if I'm in a close guard and someone clamps over my shoulder and I know they've got like a good game from that if they kind of like don't take full advantage of the position and maybe they do like they're a bit too quick to kind of pull the trigger on something or whatnot. And then I get out, you know, I just think, man, like I really was like pretty sure that I was screwed there. And they just kind of gave me a gift by just like pulling the trigger on something that wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the time to go for or whatnot, you know? So <laughs> whenever that happens, my instructor says it's Christmas. 
That's uh, that's his way of saying it's a gift. We'll be sparring and, you know, you leave your hand dangling somewhere and ah, it's Christmas and then he'll beat the shit out of you. And that's a learning experience for everyone, I guess. That's awesome. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, on that topic, when we're getting into, you know, things like high guard and attack sequences, what does your attack game look like from close guard, especially when it comes to like, how do you balance the you know, the dilemma here between sweeps and submissions. Do you kind of favor one versus the other? Do you do you have a lot of success actually attacking subs off the bottom? I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this whole thing. Yeah, totally. So I would say that from the closed guard, I'm mostly looking to submit or take the back. And I don't open up to sweep as much just because like if I look again, like, you know, if we're going to money ball this thing, if I look in competition, I've had the most like the most successful attacks I've had from close guard have been arm bars and back takes, right? The arm bar finishes the match and the back take almost, you know, can also finish the match most of the time, right? Because either I'm getting a significant lead on points or from the back, I have tons of options to submit, right? So in my mind, if I have the option to do these like super high scoring or, you know, match finishing sequences, I don't like opening up for something else because I just think, oh, well, if I stay here long enough and keep working my sequences, like based off of previous matches, I have a good chance of potentially just finishing the match from here or going to the back, which is such a dominant position. So I would say that I definitely favor submitting or taking the back from the close guard versus like looking to sweep or whatnot. Interesting, because I have heard people suggest that the opposite it can sometimes be true, right? Because I mean, the reality is it is often easier to get a submission if you're in a, a dominant position. So if you're the one on top, right? If you're the one playing close guard, yeah, there, there's a lot of attacks that you can do, but your opponents, you know, they don't have their back against the floor because they're the one on top. They can move around a lot. It can be hard to finish from there. I'd love to know how you how you basically increase the certainty of being able to get that submission when you're in close guard. Is there anything you do or any particular strategies you use to make sure that, hey, look, when I actually go for this armbar, I'm going to get this thing rather than, you know, just getting stacked and passed from there? Yeah, totally. So I think that's like huge is so as much as I've had so much success with the armbar from close guard, I also am not looking to force it when it's not there. And I think that's something and it's a mistake I, you know, I've made maybe with other positions and whatnot. And I totally understand why someone could kind of fall into this trap. But you let's say you're really good at a submission and and you get it often. Sometimes you'll make the mistake of trying to force it when it's not there. So if I do lock up that high guard, I'm essentially, I'm only going to throw, once I throw the leg over the head, first of all, in terms of like, if my arm bar fails, the chances of me ending up in a bad position once my leg clears my opponent's head is a lot higher versus if I'm just camping out in the high guard and for some reason, you know, my opponent is able to square back in their shoulder or whatnot, like there's there's no real consequence, right? There's just in my close guard, I've lost control of the shoulder, which sucks, but I'm not getting my guard pass or whatnot. If I throw the leg over the head and commit to this arm bar and it fails, there's a good chance that, you know, my opponent can end up in side control. They can maybe, if I am forced to turtle, they might end up on my back. So the consequences of this failed armbar are potentially severe. So I want to make sure that if I'm throwing my leg over the head from that high guard, that I'm like 99% sure that I'm taking this arm home. So I think if I'm in the high guard and I'm already receiving, I think two main things that will kind of turn me off from the armbar will be one, if I'm already receiving a lot of stack. So if I'm in this high guard and I'm already being heavily stacked, Often I think to myself, okay, well, there's things I can do to deal with the stack once I commit to the armbar. But if I'm already in like an objectively like kind of weak position to create any kind of extension on an arm, 
maybe it's not the time to go for it one and two i would say you know if they have like a strong figure four defense and again you know depending on my opponent if i feel like i'm gonna have a hard time once i throw that leg over the head to kind of separate the arms whatever it may be i'm not going to commit to it um, but what's really great about this high guard position and the way i like to play is i do feel that if i encounter either one of those those problems i do have the option to transfer the arm all the way across uh, and start attacking the back but i think that just being honest, like even if you're really gung ho for a certain submission, being honest about whether or not it's like the best time to, to kind of go for it, because in the end, like no amount of like heart is going to compensate like like a, a structurally poor for like a structurally poor attack, right? And I think that's maybe a mistake that some people make. But yeah, so I think just reading the moment, yeah. That's a good point. Getting too attached to trying to get a particular submission can lead to these situations where, yeah, you try to throw up an armbar while your opponent still is in a pretty good position and they still got posture and you wind up basically just letting yourself get stack passed because you, you, you know, you put yourself into the position where your opponent can do that because maybe you thought to yourself, oh, great, I've got the arm. But there's a lot more to having a good armbar than just having the arm, right? You've got to be able to break their posture down. If you can latch onto their arm, but they still have the ability to get up and stack on top of you, then it's not really a great armbar, even if you technically have the arm. So with any of these submissions, yeah, I, I like this this bit that you're saying about making sure that you really understand that you're going to get this before you make the commitment to go for that move. Because that, that is the problem with a lot of submissions from guard, particularly the armbar and the triangle, is is if you try to go for one when the opening isn't truly there, probably bad things are going to happen to you as the person on the bottom, right? You're probably going to wind up getting stack passed or something equivalent. That's it. Exactly. You know, so it's, it's definitely, I'm, I'm trying to take like very calculated risks. Um, and again, just because I feel like I have a lot of control from that close guard, it come, kind of comes back to like, I don't want to give my opponent gifts. So if I go in for like some sort of sloppy attack, I feel like I'm definitely giving them them a gift, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Something I'd like to explore here, whenever you talk about positions like close guard, where basically you need to wrap your body around your opponent's body, right? You need to get your legs around them and then lock your legs on the far side. Um, a challenge with such a thing is that there is a body type consideration there, right? We all have uh, different frames. And of course, in <laughs> depending on what you're trying to do in jujitsu, you might be sparring with someone who is markedly bigger or smaller than you. And I've always found with closed guard, I mean, I don't have particularly long legs. I'm pretty short and stocky. So against a regular sized opponent who's my own size, I have trouble, you know, crossing my ankles and holding them in position against a much bigger opponent. Sometimes I can't even do that, right? I can't even actually cross my ankles behind them. Do you ever encounter that? And do you have any thoughts on what to do in that situation where just due to body type dynamics, you can't even actually get your legs around to cross? Uh, would you, do you have an adaptation or would you just abandon close guard in favor of something else? So, I mean, it's, I guess there's like kind of two parts to this where obviously like if your legs physically can't like wrap around your opponents, your opponent's like torso and you can't connect your ankles. That's definitely like, you know, that's an, that's a consideration. Like you can't ignore. I'd say that it doesn't happen to me super often. And the one thing I will say, like I, I'm probably on the taller end for women, but I 
do role spar a lot with with men who are who are larger than me. So in terms, obviously, if I can't physically close my feet around my my partner's torso, that's going to cause maybe some problems and for my close guard, it's still you know there's still things I can kind of attack and whatnot. But obviously, yeah, a little you know significantly less control. But I will say in terms of like let's say a larger opponent where I can cross my legs behind, I do really like the close guard just because I feel that something rolling with larger people, I can get like very like it can get a bit overwhelming, at least for me personally, you know, if like they're just kind of free to put their weight into you, like as they please, let's say you're like fighting out of an open guard, you're kind of like, I know, maybe more susceptible to their their movements and whatnot. But if I can like close the guard on a, a larger opponent, while it's my attacks are obviously going to be more difficult, uh, because I'm that holds true for almost any position against a larger opponent, I do feel that now their movements are predictable. Right. So I'm not dealing with like extra weight that's unpredictable. I'm dealing with very predictable weight. Right. So I know exactly where the pressure is going to come because there's only so many ways to pass a close guard. I'm not often surprised by the strategy my opponent takes. So I know exactly where they're going to place their weight. And it's like a very straightforward thing to deal with versus if they're trying to pass my open guard. There's like, I would argue, like a larger variety of ways to pass an open guard. So if I'm dealing with a larger opponent, it's going to be more unpredictable and where they're going to use their strength and weight advantage versus the close guards can be super predictable. So I think that that can be a really great thing. You know, if you're someone who's rolling with like larger people repetitively, often, sorry, I should say, the close guard can be a great strategy to kind of deal with them. That being said, obviously, if you can't like close, you know, can't even close your legs around them, that could cause problems for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a consideration, although I think you can probably still figure out ways to play it. I mean, realistically speaking, even if you're fighting someone who's your own size, yeah, you're crossing your ankles behind them probably, but that ankle cross, that's not where the power is actually really truly coming from, right? I mean, even if the person is the same size as you, you can't just hold someone down by crossing your ankles behind them. You need to be attacking their upper body. You need to be trying to break their posture. You need to be trying to control their arms. So even against a bigger opponent where maybe you can't traditionally cross your ankles behind them because they're just too big you can still kind of play the position and just sort of dig your heels into the back of into their back something that i do sometimes even is if i can't close my guard which is common because i got stubby legs i'll actually put my feet down and plant them on the floor and use it to kind of reap their legs from the inside or i'll even step Mm. on their calves sometimes and i mean it's not an amazing control but as long as i've got attack control on their upper body and i'm still attacking the arms still attacking the neck and i can keep them from posturing up it can totally work right it's still totally viable i do think though that with close guard there is a, a point of no return where if your opponent is really hell bent on standing up there's a point where you got to realize okay i can't stop this person from actually getting up anymore i've lost that opportunity and then you got to start figuring out what you want to do from there i'd be curious to know when that happens you know what's what's your a game when you realize okay this person's gonna get up i don't think i can hold them in close guard the way that i wanted what do you transition to as a plan b for sure well so again something i love about the close guard is that even if they my opponent does manage to stand up two things i could kind of think of is one, like I have access, I would say to like, you know, it, it's pretty easy to, let's say, like just open up and drop into like a Delhiva guard or something from there. You know, I'm very much still like attached to my opponent. So I don't have to necessarily stress as much as when we're both standing and I want to pull guard. I might pull guard, 
ideally I'm getting straight to the position I want to work from, you know, maybe a strong Del Hiva or whatever it may be. But, you know, it's it's a bit more dynamic and it's hard to it's a bit harder to have control over that situation. What I like about the close guard is that even if they open it up, either they force it open or they stand up and I know it's gonna get open, so I open it up on my own terms. I find it's like, you know, really easy to drop into like a good Delahiva where I'm gonna have like control, let's say like a good collar grip already or a good sleeve grip already. You know, I can kind of choose my grips before I open my guard, which is really nice. Um so I would say like in the gi I was mostly either dropping into Delahiva or obviously like because your hips are elevated. It's something, a skill that I'm, uh, I guess a game I'm trying to still uh, improve on, but something I also really liked playing with was, I think in the gi, you know, it's called the matrix and no gi, they call it the K guard, or maybe they're two different things. I'm uh, totally misnaming them, but I I think, I think they're, they're describing basically the same thing, but I love the back takes, you know, off of inverting your knee inside of your opponent's knee. Um, and it's a great moment to kind of attack those things because your hips are coming from like a point of elevation. You know, similar to like if you're doing an upper body attack and someone postures out of it and, you know, it's a great time to kind of enter into like leg entanglements and stuff. So that's obviously an option as well. And then I think something that's worth noting too, again, just because if, if I'm trying to like sell the clothes guard to listeners, <laughs> is that I find that even if the person does stand up, if you did a good job of like kind of, you know, continuously challenging their base, kind of attacking, whatever, making it really hard for them to stand up. What I love about it is that when they do stand up, like often they're like a bit fatigued, you know, ideally in a, in a perfect world, you've kind of tired them out a little bit. So again, if it might give you a bit of the edge in like, in terms of like, then they're finally standing up. They're just thinking like, oh my God, I just want to open this close guard. And then all of a sudden, like they open the close guard and you're dropping into like another attack. They still have to pass your guard completely, right? They're not, it's not like they're opening your close guard into like a chest to chest half guard, right? They're opening your close guard into like usually a full Delhi Hiva guard or something like that, right? So that's really great. And that's actually something that kind of sold me on the close guard was because every time someone closed the guard on me, I would just like, especially if it was off a scramble or something, I'd just be like, oh my God, I have to like now fight this person's grips for like, you know, two, three minutes. And then I have to like, finally get up, shake this person off me. And then I, I'm rewarded for doing that. And I, by having to like pass maybe their like super intricate Delhiva guard, you know? So uh, it's definitely great in that sense. Yeah. Whenever I get suckered into someone's clothes guard, I guess on the bright side, I immediately know that I'm going to hit my calorie burn goal for the day because it <laughs> is, like you said, a, a lot of work to get out of that stupid trap. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> but you brought up something really interesting here, which is, okay, if the closed guard breaks, you break it on your own terms. And that often means that something like Delahiva guard is, is right there, or maybe a, you know, a matrix hook, something to that effect. What you're talking about here reminds me of something that, uh, Lachlan once said, which is that not all guards chain together well. And so you've got to have a way to thread all of the different guards you like to play together. Close guard is an interesting one because your legs are going around the outside of your opponent's legs. It's kind of like an outside guard, as opposed to something like butterfly guard, where your legs are going on the inside of their legs. So the trick with close guard is you've got to have another outside guard lined up in case your opponent breaks the close guard. So if you if your opponent is able to break your guard and stand up, if the only other guard you know how to play is butterfly guard, you probably got a problem because it's very hard to go from that outside close guard to the butterfly guard without making a lot of space. So if you're going to play close guard, a good backup guard to have, like you said, Delahiva is a, a very obvious one because if your opponent stands up, they're basically standing up right into Delahiva guard. But yeah, matrix hooks or anything that you can use to attack around the outside 
it's going to transition mm-hmm. well with closed guard because your legs are already in the right position if the, your opponent breaks your guard open. Totally, yeah. And actually, you know, it's I've been a bit out of the gi game for the past year, but you know, also like obviously that includes like you know a collar sleeve guard and and stuff like that as well. But yeah, totally, it's a good way to see it. You know, you have to kind of transitioning to another outside guard is definitely going to be the simplest path. That's a good way to put it. Awesome. Well, hey, great conversation. But before we tie this up, Brianna, is there anything you wanted to talk about or suggest any other pointers you've got on the close guard that we didn't get into today? I would just maybe put extra emphasis on anyone who's like looking to improve their close guard. I would just like really emphasize getting good at keeping your opponent on their knees, right? So obviously, like, you know, add to your arsenal of attacks and, you know, and and whatnot but but what's more important i would say is just being able to like consistently keep your opponent on their knees and break their frames efficiently every time they they establish them things like that are like almost more essential than like having a wide variety of attacks right in the end i do i actually do very little from the close guard in terms of like variety of attacks i'm doing like three four things consistently but what i'm spending a lot of time doing you know is is just finding new ways to kind of challenge my opponent's posture and keep them on their knees, right? So I would say those are like some really good skills to kind of invest in, even though the arm bar, the arm bar, let's say, has a bigger appeal, but you won't be able to arm bar your opponent if your opponent is just standing up in your close guard right away every time, right? So I would just say maybe that as advice. And then obviously like, you know, comes with anything, you know, just drilling in the close guard with resistance, obviously is kind of a, a great way to, to improve those skills. But yeah, I guess that, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Great advice. Well, hey, if anyone wants to follow you or learn from you, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, totally. So I'm on Instagram. My name is uh, Brianna SM. So you can follow me there. I do have an instructional out on Jiu-Jitsu X on the close guard. I also have, uh, if there's any French speakers out there, I have a French instructional on passing half guard on leclercbjj.com. So if you want to learn in French, that's totally an option too. And yeah, and then hopefully I'll be releasing some some more instructional material in the future. So if you follow my Instagram page, you'll be sure to get any kind of notification of that. Awesome. And as always, I will put all of those links in the show notes, because if people are like me, they're probably listening to this while they're trying to walk the dog or do the laundry and they don't have a pen nearby. So (laughs) just come back to the podcast later, pop open the show notes. There will be a link to Brianna's Instagram and to those instructionals as well. I think it's super cool that you're actually doing non-English language instructionals. This is something that comes up every now and then. I get uh, messages from people saying, hey, I'm from France. Do you have anything in French? And I don't, but I think it's great that you're actually solving for that because as jujitsu becomes a, a more and more global sport, there's going to be a lot of people who want to attack it outside of English and Portuguese. Yeah, totally. And actually, you know, all the credit goes to Pierre-Olivier Leclerc, my friend who trains in Montreal here. You might know him. He does super well on the competition scene as well. And he actually started like a completely French platform where he like, you know, kind of where you can get a monthly membership, for example, and there's regularly techniques that are updated. And he's the one who invited me to to film an instructional on his platform. And I just was so happy for you know, the opportunity. And it's, it's really cool to be able to reach, let's say more people. And also just teaching is kind of a skill that I'm continuously working on and trying to improve on. So, you know, teaching another language is just kind of another facet of that. So it was definitely a really cool project. And I have to give credit to him for for thinking of it. 
Awesome. Awesome. And of course, if anyone wants to check out our stuff, I think probably everyone knows how, but everything that we do is on bjjmentalmodels.com. Again, if, in case you've forgotten that, I'll also put the link in the show notes. The big thing I always like to draw people's attention to is BJJ Mental Models Premium, which you can get at the same address. It's our subscription service. In addition to being the best way to float the show, that's also where we put all of the uh, courseware content that I've talked about here. So I, I think I mentioned that we've done some stuff with John Thomas and with Margot Ciccarelli. That stuff is all on premium. Probably the main difference between what we do and everyone else is it's not just another uh, grab bag of video technique instructionals. We only do audio, which allows us to be something that you can absorb in the background, like I said, while you're walking the dog or whatever. And instead of doing monkey see, monkey do stuff where we say, hey, just copy me, we talk about things like strategy, concepts, mindsets, try to provide a very unique slant to jujitsu. In addition to, of course, the core stuff, you also get our awesome uh, rolling review service and community access. We've got a ton of really high-level black belts, including a multiple black belt world champions on our review service. So if you sign up there, it's only 20 bucks a month, and you can have some really high-level grapplers review and break down your footage, plus some cool courseware there. There's a free trial. I always recommend people check it out, bjjmentalmodels.com. Thanks again for everyone who either already subscribes or has at least taken the time to try it out. Even if it wasn't for you, I really do greatly appreciate everyone taking a look, because like I said, that's how we, uh, we fund this thing. That's how we support what we do. But Brianna, thank you so much for coming by. This was a fantastic conversation. Hey, and congratulations on the great performance at ADCC. Was awesome watching you compete. You brought pride to the home country of Canada. So <laughs> really happy to, to see Canada represented at the high levels. And hey, it's only a few years until the next one. I'm going to be looking forward to watching you then as well. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on for this great conversation on one of my favorite topics and positions in jiu-jitsu. And yeah, it was really cool to be a part of your podcast today. So thank you. Amazing. And hope this was helpful to everyone who listens. Thanks to you as well. We'll talk to you next week. Take care.